pray. May the words that I speak now, the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience, be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. How do you know if someone is mad? You sometimes know because they see things that aren't there. They have hallucinations. They are convinced that they can see things which actually other people think are not there. But not everybody who sees a vision is mad. We've heard today two stories of people seeing, if you like, visions. Moments when, as it were, the curtain is pulled back and they see into the truth of things. One story was the story from the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha. The point when Elijah reaches the end of his earthly life and his mantle, his job as it were, passes to his follower, Elisha. How do we know if Elisha is going to be good enough to pick up doing what Elijah has been doing. Elijah, the great prophet of God, the person who in his time above anybody else could see what God is like, could see the way God wanted people to behave, could put into words that people could understand the truths about God that he found in the scriptures. In his speaking, he was able to put the word of God in contemporary language. That's what made Elijah the greatest prophet of his age. And here he was reaching the end of his ministry and his life. Who would follow him in that great task? Preeminent amongst his followers was this man, Elisha. But who was to know if Elisha was good enough? Was Elisha committed enough to take all the knocks and the hardship and the difficulties of speaking to people who do not wish to hear, of speaking to people in God's name, in speaking God's word, drawing it from the scriptures and speaking it in contemporary language, to be a prophet in succession to Elijah. Was he committed enough to do it? And in the story that you heard, you hear Elisha's commitment being tested. Elijah is on a journey. And every now and again, and he stops and he turns to Elisha and he says, 
you can stop here. And every time Elisha says, no, I'm not going to stop here. If you are going on, I'm going with you. I am committed to you. Whatever happens to you will happen to me. Again and again, Elisha in that story acts out his commitment. He's committed. But does he know God well enough and the things of God well enough to be useful to God as a mouthpiece? Does he understand God's ways well enough to be a prophet? Is he good enough for that? And the story gives an answer to that. Elisha will be used by God and the sign of Elisha being used by God will be if Elisha can understand what's about to happen to Elijah. And he has a vision. Suddenly, as Elijah goes on, things look different. Things look different. Things, Elisha suddenly sees things clearly. He suddenly sees them in a new way. He sees Elijah being taken close into the heart of God. Elijah, in a sense, does not die. Elijah simply moves on to be close with God. And Elisha sees it. Elisha sees what God is doing. Elisha sees into the heart of God. And the fact that Elisha can see into the heart of God is what means he can be a trustworthy prophet. Now think of the story that we heard from the Gospel against that background. It's the story which we often give the title to of the Transfiguration. And we often think of it as a story which is really only about Jesus. One minute he looks like this, the next minute he looks like that. As if he suddenly gets changed in that story. But the real change in that story is in the way his disciples see things. The real transformation going on is in the disciples. Jesus is not changed from something he wasn't into something he is. Jesus has always been like that. The point is that the disciples now start to see what Jesus is really like. They see deep into the heart of God and see what Jesus is like. And these disciples, like Elisha, have been called by Jesus to be his successors, to be his servants. Like Elisha, they've been trained 
by Jesus, like Elisha was trained by Elijah. These have been trained by Jesus. They have seen what Jesus has been doing. They've heard what he's been saying. He sent them out to do some of it for themselves. And they have to find whether they are committed to being Jesus' disciples. And they have to find whether they can see well enough into what God is like and what God is doing to take on the work of Jesus, to help him with it, to do it on his behalf. Do they understand how God sees Jesus? Do they understand what Jesus is really like? As I say, they've been listening to him, watching him, learning from him, doing some of the things he's asked them to do. They've been trained. But will they be able to do it on their own? Do they really understand what it's all about? Just before the story that we heard this morning, Jesus had given them, if you like, a quick test. He'd said to them, you've seen me. You've seen how the people are reacting to me. What are people saying about me? How do they interpret who I am and what I'm doing? How do they understand me? And the disciples say, well, some people think you're like one of those old prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, like Moses. Some people think that you're a special agent, a Messiah of God who will come. People have all sorts of ideas about you. And then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, that's what other people think. Now what about you? You've heard what I say, you've seen what I do, you've started doing some bits of it. Who do you say I am? How do you understand me? What do you think about me? And Peter, always the first, the spokesman for the rest, makes a huge leap forward. Peter says, you're God's anointed agent. You are the one through whom God is bringing about the kingdom on earth. And Jesus immediately starts to say, yes, and the way I will bring God's kingdom about on earth will involve me going to my death and being raised to new life. And Peter has made a huge step forward, but he hasn't been able to get that far. Oh no, he says. No, if you're God's special agent, if you're God's son, that can't be true. 
You can't do anything on behalf of God by being killed. No. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't tempt me, Peter. He actually calls him Satan. Peter, who's just started to get the answer right, has then showed he's not actually understood very much yet. And he gets the ways of God wrong. And Jesus goes on to teach about what it means to bring about God's kingdom, to live in God's love in this world, to bring God's love about in the world. And then he takes three of them, Peter, James and John, up a mountain. The Bible is full of examples of where people got mountains and feel closer to God and see things more clearly. Moses up the mountain receiving the word from God. Elijah on the mountain when he hears the still small voice of God speaking. And there are more examples than that. Peter takes them up a mountain. And on the mountain, Peter, James and John understand more. They see things more clearly. Suddenly, they see things differently. Suddenly, they see that Jesus is, if you like to put it colloquially, up there with Moses and Elijah in God's plannings. Jesus is at least as important as Moses. And actually they go on and see he's even more important than that because Moses and Elijah are deferring to him. They see Jesus' part in things. They see God's glory shining out of Jesus, shining through Jesus in a way They've never seen it before. The glory of God has always been shining through Jesus. They've not seen it before. Now they're starting to see it, to understand, to really understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And how close he is to God. And how God works through him. How he is part of God. How he is God's son. And Peter, of course, as usual, pragmatic. I always think Peter is the quintessential Methodist saint. Totally pragmatic about everything he does. So there they are having this incredible spiritual enlightenment, this wonderful vision. And Peter worries about whether they're going to have enough shelter. He worries about the practicalities of life. So shall we make three shelters, he says. But also Peter is trying to nail that experience down and keep it. And he has to learn, as the story goes on beyond the bit that we heard this morning, 
He has to learn that Jesus is not going to stop on that mountain. What they see about Jesus in the mountain is true about the Jesus who walks about in the valleys. It's down in the valleys that the love of God needs to be shown. They've had to go up the mountain in order to see it and understand it, but they can't stay on the mountain because the people who need that love are down in the valley. When Martin Luther King received the Nobel Peace Prize, he came back to America and made a fantastic speech where he talks about going and being fated by the world, honoured by everybody at the Peace Prize ceremony. And he uses his image. He says, I've been up the mountain. I wanted to stay there, but I've got to go back to the valley. Because the Peace Prize was to work out peace in the valleys. Peter, James and John are not going to be able to stop there in this land of wonderful vision. The love that they see, the glory that they see, the God that they see in Jesus is needed down in the valleys where the people are. And on the mountaintop, they hear God speaking. They hear God saying to them, a voice from heaven, a voice of God from heaven. They hear it saying to them what at the start of Mark's gospel, it has said just to Jesus. Jesus' baptism at the start of Mark's gospel, the voice from heaven, the voice of God from heaven says to Jesus, you are my son. And now, on this mountain top, the same voice says the same thing to Peter, James and John. This is my son. God acknowledges Jesus. What they can see about Jesus is confirmed by what God, the voice from heaven, says. But now... God speaking from heaven adds something else. You don't have to keep going up mountaintops in order to catch an echo of what God is saying. If you want to hear God speaking, says God, now you can listen to Jesus This is my son. Listen to him. If you want to hear God speaking now, you don't need to wait for a vision. You don't need to wait for words to ring in your head when you're on a high mountain. You've got the words of Jesus. And you've got the words of Jesus recorded in the Bible. You may hear Jesus speaking to you. You may hear God speaking to you in all sorts of other ways. But there's no reason to ignore the words we've already got in the hope of listening for some new ones. We have God speaking to us through Jesus in what Jesus says, 
And we have the record of that in the scriptures. And if they're going to carry on after Jesus' death and resurrection, carry on the mission of God's kingdom, bringing God's love into the world, which they and now we are called to do, we need to be able to speak to people in language they can understand and say to them how God sees life and sees the world. We need to be able to speak the words of Jesus in contemporary language. And we know the sort of things we need to say because we have the words of God, God's voice, recorded in the words of Jesus in the New Testament. St. Paul reflected on all this which is why we had that reading from the second letter to the Corinthians. St. Paul recognises that, as I say, the story of the transfiguration is not about changing, Jesus changing from something he wasn't into something else. Jesus was always filled with the glory and love of God. What the story is about is the way the disciples understand Jesus and see him and see what God is doing through him. And somehow we don't want to pay much attention to the words of Jesus and we don't really want to see what God is doing in Jesus and still is doing in Jesus in the world. It's as if the social conditions, the ways of thinking of our age, dim our eyes, put curtains across our understanding, says St. Paul. But God has said, let light shine out of darkness. And God, therefore, can light a light in our hearts. The light of the love and glory of God that you see shining in Jesus as you respond to it and accept it starts to glow in your own life, in your own heart. And other people will start to hear God speaking through you, will start to see God loving through you. And you probably won't even know it's happening. A transfiguration is a transfiguration of us. May we all be committed to be followers of Jesus and start to glow with the love and the glory that we see in Christ. Amen. The hymn of response, number 662, author of faith, the eternal word.